right, so join in today on War Stories of Sayer Pain. Sayer, what's going on? Hey, how's it going? Happy Monday. Yeah, so I uh, thought we'd do something a little different today. Instead of telling stories about American military history, dive into a topic that's kind of top of the news for a little while here, and that's the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Um, Sayer and I were in Afghanistan at the same time, uh, together, back in 2010-11, so thought it'd be a fun one just to talk about and kind of there's you know there were there's been a lot of questions on TikTok say are people asking what are your thoughts of a lot of people on this withdrawal and um it's not a 60 second answer because it's or at least for me I guess I should say it's deep I'm I a part of me kind of wants to say emotional I don't know if it's emotional but it's certainly not 60 seconds so there's a long rambling intro to say uh Let's talk about it. Withdrawn from Afghanistan by September 11th of this year. What do you think, man? What hit when you, when you first heard about that, what were the uh, thoughts, emotions, anything come to mind? Number one, I would say, well, let's see what happens. Um, When we were there, you'd always get those rumors that, Oh, Hey, peace talks, Qatar or Doha, whatever Taliban's meeting. And we're going to go home early. Do you remember that? That was 10 years ago. Yeah. Well, so my first question, you know, it's trust but verify. So uh, number one is, well, let's see. But number two is, I'd also say, well, we were there 10 years ago and we are still there now. And when we were there 10 years ago, we were kind of already there for 10 years at that point too. Um, so, and we have to remember why were we there 20 years ago? It was, Bin Laden and Al-Qaeda and planes going overseas. It wasn't really Taliban focused, even though it sort of was. Um, and we just have to reassess the environment. It's 2021. We just had a friggin' pandemic. Um, there's economic, there's just lots of stuff going on. And I'm not pulling the strings. I don't know. You know, there's all intel that we don't know. There's the red dossier or the red notebook. We don't know. Um, we don't know what they know. But I'm okay with the transition as a way of like, it's about time. Um, I feel like we were in a hell of a fight and we did it, what we had to do and, and we gave it our all. And that's all you can ask. Did you, th- what did you do when you were there? Did you give it your all? You know, and, and if you did, then you, then you move on. Um, then you just move on and, and make decisions after that. You got more information than you had. So go ahead and do whatever you got to do after that. It's a good point of, like, we'll see. Um, I mean, there's like, I think I saw there's 2,500 troops there right now. That's tiny. Like, what are you, what are you doing outside of the special operations raids and all that? Like 2,500 is not very many. I was, I'm not going to go back and pull up every time there's been, you're, you're right. There's been all of these different rumors, official and unofficial of withdrawals, um, for probably going on, I mean, I wonder when that first started, right? When was the first talk of we'll be out of Afghanistan by? Um, when, uh, I'll, I'll tell you, it's when George Bush said, hey, Mullah Omar, our beef is not with you. It's with bin Laden. So give him up now and there will not be a problem. So it started from day one. Like, I'm, I'm not going to go back and look at each time this has popped up and fallen off, but it's certainly, I mean, 
even under Trump, I remember hearing that there was like, this is on the radar. We're getting ready to go. Um, I don't know. I guess the bigger question you were kind of hitting on this. Is there a difference made? I mean, how about this for like a, a kind of high level question? If you were king of the universe back in 2001 and had unlimited resources, unlimited personnel, unlimited everything, would you have done this differently? Oh, well, now you're perfect world hindsight being 2020 type stuff. Well, so the reason I ask that, and to, maybe this is, is a leading question, is I don't know what I would have done. Like, if you look at conflicts throughout military history, you can always, you know, if they just had one more carrier, if they just had, you know, twice the size of the Navy or three times the number of divisions, you could do that thing. I don't know what it would have been in Afghanistan. Well, here's what I would like to uh, raise a thought. And by the way, uh, do not take this in any way regarding the justification of the Iraq war. I'm not even going down that rabbit hole right now and addressing that at all. But I think we have to wonder what it would have looked like without the Iraq thing. Soul and focus. the time, soul focus, all energy and focus on the Al-Qaeda issue uh, with the secondary issue of being um, safe haven by the Taliban government. It's very extreme, not maybe not even extremist is the right word, but just very harsh um, strict rule of law, um, religious state is what they were at that time. Um, very strict. Um, and the rule of law, the rule of their law, right? Um, and to us, that's what's strict. We use that word strict. They don't. They would say we're the loose ones. They are the normal ones, right? Um, we always have to remember that. But I just wonder then, all that focus, we've got the... Um, in the 90s, we've got uh, sporadic special operations things here and there with or and, and quasi-conventional between the Ranger and 10th Mountain type stuff in Somalia. You've got um, the Haiti sort of thing the 82nd did. And then you got Kosovo. Uh, that's pretty good practice, sort of, post, um, post-desert storm. And, uh, and not a conventional peer really to have to struggle against at this time in in 2001 just to go back in time to think about where we were at the world stage there was no soviet union you and i remember the russians we don't remember the soviets and um we just had a lot of good shit going on from a military standpoint um lots of forward progress really not a lot of um steps backward at that time it was all moving forward uh technology was increasing so um if we harnessed all of that, all of that towards bin Laden and the Al Qaeda network, it just, that's a what if, right? That's a very interesting what if. So that kind of gets into this quagmire that is, I mean, I think there's some like perfect analogies between Vietnam and Afghanistan, not so much Vietnam and Iraq. I know that's been thrown around a lot, but for me, I can just see it like one-to-one in Afghanistan in so many different ways, but one of those is kind of the shifting nature of the mission, at least, I mean, I'm not using this podcast to get into like the detailed strategic implications of every decision over the course of the war. Um, like things 
changed over time, right? To your point, right out the gate saying our beef is not with you, Taliban, Mullah Omar. But it, it kind of turned into that pretty quickly. But, you know, the reality is the Taliban is a, a regional, I think is probably the safe way to say, movement between Pakistan and Afghanistan, for the most part, pretty, pretty hold up in that area. I mean, the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, right? That's what they're at. Mm-hmm. It's not the Taliban that are striking out at Western targets around the globe. So we're, we're in their weeds. Their beef isn't necessarily with us until we get there. So you see this kind of changing of the strategy. And I don't know. I, I wonder if you're right. If, if the entire focus was Al-Qaeda. I mean, we displaced Al-Qaeda, right? They, they were forced to scatter to a degree, um, but when it comes to this homegrown type movement like the Taliban, it just feels like mowing the grass. Like you can mow it, you can mow it once a week, you can mow it once a day, but the minute you stop paying attention to it, you go on vacation for a month or whatever, you come back and it's overgrown. And like, the more you mow it, the duller the blade gets. So you got to keep resharpening that blade. And then your mower runs out of gas and you got to get more gas and then the carburetor gets gummed up. So then you got to clean the carburetor and then the engine blows. You got to get a new mower, right? And then do I get an electric mower? I don't know. Gas was all right, but then I had a carburetor problem. So maybe electric's better. But meanwhile, the grass has grown. I mean, it seems like that was a theme across, across Afghanistan, right? There were, when there was a heavy coalition footprint, which I think I saw the peak numbers, which I think was 2010-11, was 130,000 NATO, about 100,000 US. But even in the areas they were, there was still violence. But then as soon as you move out of those areas, it's just seeding control back. It's the grass is grown. I mean, like, so it sounds like 130,000 wasn't the number, is 230,000, is 330,000. But then it does seem like the minute troops left an area, I mean, we saw this in the East, in, uh, in 2012, when we were handing bases over to the back over the Afghans. So U.S. forces were leaving these bases. You know how it went. It was entirely U.S. based and kind of the mixed thing and then mostly Afghan base. And then eventually we just completely walked away. And there were some of these that were in contact every day, every single day for months on end. U.S. forces withdrew. Contact stopped. Let's be real. Hmm. The Taliban didn't go away after U.S. forces left. And we still had radio communications with all these bases. There were regular check-ins, and there were just no more firefights. Like, that's what's happening. So how are we going to, how could we ever do that? How could we, um, it almost feels like, you know, I, I, I think in a sense, if you look at this in some ways, it's unwinnable. If that's the goal to overcome a local movement, I kind of wonder if it was unwinnable. Well, um, I think the first question is, what does winning mean? What's the definition of winning? Before we can even say, is it winnable, yes or no, which is a binary question. But just, I think, maybe take a step back real quick, because we started going um, quite specifically. Let's just, maybe for, I don't know who's listening, if it, the veterans, I'm sure know, but other people that don't. The, the real distinction here, when we were already talking about Taliban and uh, Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan and how they're regional uh, tribal people and the difference between them and Al-Qaeda. Whereas the, um, so yeah, the Taliban harbored, they were the locals that harbored bin Laden, who was Al-Qaeda. 
The difference is, well, for one, um, yeah, Taliban are the domestic people just trying to run the, the, their own rule of law in a country. That They were the party and they ruled by force. It's a political party. Think of it that way. And uh, yeah, they're governed by Islam and their own code of Pashtun Wali. Well, reverse that. Their own code followed by Islam. And it's just very long and tribal and 5,000 years old type population. And they don't speak Arabic even, okay? Al-Qaeda are like, they are uh, many, uh, pretty much all of them Western educated Arabs, which is a different ethnicity. Um, they speak Arabic. They're all Muslims, but they're different ethnicities. The uh, Taliban are ethnicity called Pashtun. Um, Bin Laden was an Arab from Saudi Arabia, two different languages. Um, similar ideology, but still different peoples. Uh, and you have the Taliban who are illiterate, um, no running water, no electricity, very rudimentary agrarian lifestyle. And then you've got a millionaire in Bin Laden and then Western educated engineers that um, some train United States or, or uh, Germany and places. And the Taliban could not even, I don't think the Taliban could point to the United States on a friggin' map, let alone drive a freaking uh, jet air train in Florida and drive a jet airliner specifically into one tower. I mean, what a, that is an incredible feat. Um, the Taliban are not, I mean, they are just agrarian. It could have, it looks like the 1400s with motorcycles. So two totally different peoples, um, but both two groups that are militant and will fight and will protect, you know, you got Taliban defending and you got Al Qaeda being on offense. So it's an interesting dynamic between those two groups and the relationship with the United States. It's valid, yeah. I mean, I this gets into something I wanted to, to hit on a little bit, but before I entered active duty, I think I was surprised at how little like international relations was a focus in the military on active and kind of the train up and all that, there just wasn't a lot of that. Um, I had in my mind for the longest time through high school, which would have been 04, graduate high school in 04, on to West Point in 05, 06, 07. Um, I thought we were fighting Al-Qaeda. That's always what it was presented as. The war in Afghanistan is against Al-Qaeda. And there were still remnants of them there, but generally speaking, it's been against the Taliban, this local movement for the bulk of the 20 year war. That initial objective you talked about ousting bin Laden and Al Qaeda, that's kind of been the poster of Afghanistan, but I don't know that it's been the reality on the ground for quite a while. There's still other groups in there. The Islamic state moved into the um, Eastern part of Afghanistan for a while. Islamic state of the Khorasan, I think is what it was called. So kind of the lawlessness in parts of Afghanistan fostered that. But I mean, even now I, I kind of view the war in Afghanistan as this fight against international terrorism, but it's kind of not the case with the Taliban. It's a totally different war. Mm -hmm. It's kind of, I mean, so this is where I can go down a rabbit hole comparing it to Vietnam where you say, well, we're in Vietnam to stop the spread of communism. You know, we don't want the North coming down and spreading communism, but then Americans get there and they fight against the Viet Cong, which are South Vietnamese guerrillas protecting their homeland. Um, maybe just don't like the United States or maybe support the North a little bit, but 
we're not really fighting communists per se. It, it kind of feels like that in Afghanistan. Um, it is. And here's a very interesting thing, insight. I, this weekend, we got a guy, local guy named Pee Wee Martin. He's a Tacoa original in 101st. Two, or, yeah, 2506? No, 3506. Um, Normandy. Market Garden. Fasto. Eagle's Nest. All of that stuff. He just turned 100. And I went with my Ranger buddies who were Vietnam PLs. One guy was Charlie 2506. Fob Ripcord. And uh, the other guy was a Ranger Alert PL with the 101st, uh, uh, 501, 1501 detachment, one of those uh, Ranger Golf Lima type companies yeah. that they had. Um, but they both call it a war of unification. It was the North. It had nothing to do with communism. It was just the powers, the U.S. and the Soviets used that as a proxy war to fight each other. But for the Vietnamese... The North wanted to unify with the South. They did not want to have two different Vietnams. They wanted one of them. And Ho Chi Minh was that leader. And communism helped pay for it. But it, that wasn't the cause. The cause itself was a unified one country of Vietnam. And then you've got the Americans and the Soviets trying to keep it divided in a way. Or each taken aside, right? I mean, each, there's an, each has an interest. We don't a line in the sand. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's easy to have a line in the sand, yeah. right? Hey, this is the South, uh, South Korea, or South Vietnam, um, or Western Berlin. We, they like drawing those laws, lines in the sand and protecting that line for some reason. It was just black and white. And I don't know. I've never really heard it expressed in those terms like that. But to them, it was about, they, they live there, right? That's what we're all talking about. They're the people that live there and they're for generations and generations and generations. And, you know, that is the, um, the similarities and the parallels. Go on the tangent here. We'll see if, see if it, if it connects, um, in with the broader theme, but when, when I'm looking at more historical events, there comes a time when you can respect the enemy instead of just the hatred. You know, it takes a little while, sometimes longer than others. If you look at the Pacific and the Second World War, there's still American and, and allied veterans that, that hate Japan based off right. of how some of that fighting went. Um, mm-hmm. It seems like Vietnam is still a little mixed. You kind of get some of that same where some people's experience were so awful that there's still a little bit of hatred. But then you, you do see some people that respect and go back and are able to you know meet up with their their enemies at one point. What do you think about that with the Taliban specifically today? Is there, well, just personally, is there, uh, do you view that as like a hatred or is it, or can we talk about them being warriors and kind of respect what they did or is it too, too soon? It's a good question. There was definitely more hatred. Was or is? Was more. 10 years ago. However, it is the, to me, the moral and the philosophical, the ethical question of if you're on a playground and there's a bully who just beats the shit out of people, no matter what, uses force, any means necessary of intimidation. And he does that 
because of a bad background, right? His, his mom is a piece of shit. He doesn't even have a dad, whatever boyfriend's in and out, um, whatever the reason. I mean, he could be uh, being molested. The parents could be alcoholics. Who knows what the hell's going on in his background? It, you know, it doesn't matter. It could be a list of things. It doesn't matter. But that's probably what's causing the, the, the bad behavior on the playground, not able to play well with others. Not only that, not only they're a verbal asshole, but they're actually physically harming people. Um, what do you do against that? Um, do you worry uh, so much about the background? Or do you get them to stop fucking punching people? And how do you, you know, what is the answer? And how do you retaliate? Do you retaliate? It's like, if you have nothing nice to say, don't say anything at all. That means you avoid all conflict. You avoid it all. You would never step in to somebody abusing somebody. If you follow that rule 100% of the time, that means no person will ever stop. Um, and I think that they have significant issues with violence and the way they treat women. Um, and, and young boys, to be frank. Um, yeah. There's, and those, to me, are significant character flaws to the point where I don't care what the justification is. I just don't care. Um, and if I'm going to go toe-to-toe with you in that sort of environment, and that's how you are, whatever, you know, I don't care, and I will give it my all to eliminate you as a threat, whatever that means. Um, But with that said, I like, I like respect the hell out of them as fighters and warriors and like going toe to toe and like walking the walk. And I don't know what to make of that because in a sense, I mean, they did not, both sides of the our 12-month deployment, which was uh, harrowing and intense, was both sides leaned in. And I respect that. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know how I couldn't. What got us there and, like, and the fact that they are defending their homeland. And by the way, who's to say I wouldn't have been a talent? And that, if I, that's where I was raised. And my uncles were the, my uncles were the Mujahideen against the Soviets and I'm 17 and 18 and I got these people who I, what in the world of America, what, I don't even know who Bin Laden is, man. Um, what, what the hell? And then they're killing all the people. A type of person like me, I would think would probably go into the Taliban to be honest, you know, and justify all of it in your head. Um, and that goes back to the empathy and the hatred part and the confliction. Cause then they're also, what do you empathize with a Nazi? Uh, if I'm German heritage, right? Like, again, I would be a fool to say um, I wouldn't have been in the German military, whatever. Like, okay, being a volunteer to be an Auschwitz guard is a little bit different, but still being a sadistic asshole. Um, statistics say that's the path that most people would have done. You know, you would be a fool to say, no, I would have been the hero. I would have been the one against 10,000. No, um, no, not really. Right. That's back to the question about how you handle the bully on the playground um and confrontation and 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 tact when to use it but um that is my kind of long-winded yeah i'm contradicted um because they do you would want to say the word cowardly you want to say the word it's cowardly 
to take a 14-year-old boy, hook him on uh, drugs, tie it all into religion, convince all the locals, and have him kill himself. But then how, <laughs> how is that act cowardly? So, um, and how is that not successful when you believe that you're defending your families? I don't, so how am I able to place my values of warfare upon them? I just don't know. Uh, I wear body armor and stuff. How is that not cowardly? Um, I wouldn't go anywhere without a helmet. I wouldn't go anywhere without a working dog. I wouldn't go anywhere without a mind detector. I wouldn't even go anywhere if it was nighttime. Not really, without a flashlight. Um, so I, I don't know how to value any of that. If you were to ask me a big question of, would I meet them again? Yes, if you could guarantee my safety because I don't trust them. Yeah, and so one point to clarify, we do keep saying like fighting for their homeland. And while we and everybody else that's been in Afghanistan or Iraq, certainly, well, stick with Afghanistan here. There were certainly homegrown fighters, right? Guys from Sangsar that picked up a weapon and fought us in Sangsar. There were also most certainly um, Pakistani Taliban all across. So when we're saying homeland, it's not necessarily somebody defending their literal home, but more of viewing kind of the broader Afghanistan and parts of Pakistan as their, you know, maybe territory or their country. So it's, again, it's not, we're trying to go in somebody's house and they're defending themselves. It could be somebody fighting from a whole different part of the country, but yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, man. I, I want to say that's a good clarification because that is correct. The people we were fighting were not from that low, they were, we're not fighting the neighborhood kids. That was not the case. They were coming in from Pakistan. Those are the trigger pullers supported by who knows and it was just this these are collective tribes of peoples that are all cousins to some degree but they're also bitter bitter rivals in a lot of sense and pettiness that all of these just like the native american tribes would you know go to war with one another it's very similar here even though they're all um but the enemy the friend of my enemy is a friend of mine or, or the enemy well you know the saying i'm butchering it but they obviously would collect against us of you know just like they did against the soviets They've already had experience doing it. And we're talking Pakistan. We're talking a giant region of peoples who all feel like they do, at the end of the day, have the same bloodline. And that's the Pashtun sort of element um, that is a big factor into all this. I found myself, it was a few weeks ago, explaining something about IEDs. So the big threat in southern Afghanistan, at least when we were there in 2010-11, was the IED threat, improvised explosive device pressure plates mostly, which were um, like a homemade mine. So you step on it, the weight sets off the mine. Um, I was explaining to somebody how the Taliban would lay these out and just found myself at the end of it saying, God, that is so smart. Because they would, to try to summarize it here, if there was a, say, an open field, they wouldn't just put 30 mines in the middle of the field, although you could always find one in a random spot. There would be a little wall, like a little two or three foot wall might be the only cover around and they would shoot at you from a direction to where you'd look at that wall and say, Hey, there's cover. I need to get behind that wall. But sure enough on each corner of the wall and in a couple of places behind it is where the IEDs would be. So your option stuck out in this field, trying to go see the local population is either lay down on the ground and hope you don't get shot or move behind this piece of cover. And while you're getting shot at, try to find these IEDs that are placed exactly where you should step 
there weren't 10 million IEDs in Southern Afghanistan. They just knew where to put them. And that's smart. That's really smart. And they've had a lot chess. of practice doing that. What's that? It's chess. Ah, it, it's, it's so incredibly smart. And it's the kind of thing where when I start walking through and explaining, like, you know, it wouldn't be at this door, it'd be at this door. And it wouldn't be on this side of the stairs. It'd be on that side of the stairs. And just, it's, it's impressive. But I'll admit at the time, I was not impressed with it. I was scared by it. It was terrifying knowing that they could be anywhere and they would probably be where you would step without thinking. Um, it's like we, you know, you have software designers, UI, UX that put together websites and apps to work just perfectly with how you interact. The Taliban were doing that with IEDs on the ground. It's Damn. crazy. It's really, really impressive. Um, and you knew they were watching you the entire time. Because how do you think they knew where to put them? And it trained us. We had to condition ourselves to not immediately seek cover and to lean into a, the rounds and to not be afraid of the rounds because we were so terrified of the IEDs. And you can't, you have to, you, um, I don't know how, I wouldn't know how a normal person responds to being shot at because I was conditioned, by the time I was shot at, I was well, very well conditioned to that um, scenario to where I didn't have to think. But I would think a natural response is to get behind a wall if you have rounds coming into you. But, you know, you're supposed to return fire and seek cover. That's what, I mean, that's kind of, that is doctrine. So that was drilled into us. Um, whether we knew it or not, the army train, let's go to battle drills. That's why they do it. It's quite awesome. They work. Um, but we, we did the, the it's return fire, but no, no, no. Think twice about cover. And um, I'd rather get shot. I take my chances with a bullet any day, all day over. Um, Cause most bullets miss. You have to go through that. It's risk management every day, all day. Uh, risk, risk mitigation and risk management, but never risk elimination. Um, that is an impossibility. So you just got to work with what you got. But um they would, they knew that too, right? That goes back. They knew that they weren't as accurate. And they knew that we had body armor and they knew that we had, we had body armor from our torso all the way up. Um, can't see our, I mean, the only part of us you could see was our mouth. And guess what they did? They blew up, blew off our entire bottom halves because <laughs> there's nothing there but boots and cargo pants. That's it. Um, uh that's a lot better than a random ak round it's where you get into this it's it's something that frustrates me through history and the two biggest examples i think are vietnam and now iraq and afghanistan where i i don't know if it's intentional marketing or maybe propaganda is the word but portraying some of our enemies in these conflicts as farmers or they were just farmers. Um, like the Viet Cong had some people that were farmers by day and fighters by night. The Taliban certainly has plenty in that category or that, that transition. But I feel like whenever we use that term, it downplays the fact that like what we just talked about, 
That's not a farmer that one day figures that stuff out. They're practicing, they're training, they're in, they're, they're risking their lives. They're, those are warriors learning how to overcome, you know, overcome the threat and beat the odds. Like I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's coming from a place of being bitter. Like these farmers figured it out. I think it's almost a level of disrespect that doesn't do us any good because we think we're going up against a guy. I mean, they would shoot at us and miss by God knows how much, right? Rarely were their shots very accurate. So we say, well, they just can't shoot at all, but they, they had mastered the IED. That's a fair statement. That's a very fair statement. Um, Yeah. They, the resourcefulness, I mean, we, we don't even know, need to go into specifics of it, but uh, the resourcefulness, even the, like the IED itself and how it was created and um, designed and <laughs> the limited materials that they have, just nothing gets wasted. This is a warrior culture. I mean, that's another, it's just, it is an entire, it's like the Apaches and they just thrive in it or it's not even about thriving. It's they just survive through it no matter what. Um, honestly, I just feel like everything from that area is just very robust. It's hard to chop a tree down. And I don't mean that to dehumanize these people at all. I don't, they, I'm just saying they come from a very hard world. It's hard to, uh, every single snake is poisonous. I believe, um, that I, we encountered one, just a little snake. It was definitely poisonous. I could tell, um, the, uh, I believe someone died from a tick bite that, uh, from the unit behind, before us, that's, it's just a very harsh life. And they, and, and it's, um, a 40 year old looks like they're 65. It, it's, they know death and they, and they, they've only known death. The Soviets before, um, just, just general mortality type issues. I, I'm sure they have typhoid, like polio, polio is almost eradicated, but guess one of the countries where it's still there. Okay. Um, so they're just exposed to such the harshness and brutality that is life that most of the world has only known up until recently. And, you know, I think that's a take home for some of us. I mean, I, I, you know, I take that home, still process it. I don't know what to make of it. Um, I do feel bad for them now, I guess. So maybe I'm going back on my, I, like I said, I don't know what to make of those guys. Well, let me, let me take it personal here for a minute. Um, I think it was 2014, maybe, when Mosul fell. Yeah. God, ignore the dates. I'm not looking up the dates right now. But Well, I know ISIS that. Mosul. ISIS, Mosul. Yeah, got it. Mosul, Fallujah, when they were taking these areas. And there were people, American military veterans, speaking up saying, you know, my brothers died for that. I fought for that. And it's so hard to see all of those gains go to waste. If we could turn on a camera in Zari district right now, I'm pretty sure you know what you would see. I don't know for a fact, but I have a pretty good feeling that it is not the um, Afghan government running the show in the deepest, darkest areas of Zari district, Kandahar province. How do you feel about that? Oh, how do I feel about that? um like you you cleared some of those areas out some of those areas were you know you removed taliban from parts of that district for the first time maybe yet yeah um well the uh yeah but here's the thing i'm not i'm this is what i expected so there's no surprise 
you were jaded the whole time we were there. I remember that for sure. Well, here's the thing. <laughs> I viewed myself as the eyeballs on the ground, and I had the power as the officer. I had the power that 20 other people did not have. And the order from the top rolls downhill down to the very lowest private. I am the last order, lawful order, derived from the Constitution itself before that trigger is squeezed. And so it is my duty to, for my judgment, morally, ethically, that is my take on that. And um, I'm going to bring everybody home. But I'm going to do, that's the, I mean, that's, nobody could really explain me the specific mission besides kill Taliban. That's, yeah, we're going to kill Taliban. Absolutely. Don't fuck with us. Um, and if you do, you will, you're going to, strong offense is the best defense. You look soft, you're going to get rolled up. Anybody, you know, if anybody here is in the military and there's a gloves don't matter and uh, that sort of thing, they do matter because if you can't do simple things, you can't be trusted with the big ones. That's 100% true and accurate. It's not arbitrary. And if your team leaders can't do little things right, you're going to fuck up the big ones and people will die. That is 100% truth. And um, the point of all of that is that's how you bring guys home. And even if it's perpetuating violence, um, you bring them home. And that's what uh, my platoon sergeant, who was a squad leader in Fallujah, in 2005 and before us he was a senior drill sergeant at fort benning georgia he was some of the guys in the privates in the battalion's drill sergeant right before they hit deployment um training infantrymen with his squad leader time clearing house to house um you know man-to-man type hand grenade clearing room type environment um he just said everywhere you step never forget that everywhere you step is united states soil and don't let anybody take that from you. And that was the attitude that we carried throughout that deployment. Um, this is not, I'm not talking scorched earth of killing civilians or anybody in my path to protect my guys. I'm actually talking the exact opposite also because strict rules of engagement. I don't know if we'll even get into that. So if, you know, I do not want to take, do not take this as a violation of ROE because I will tell you, you could have recorded anything and everything there was not a violation of ROE at one point. I'm not saying that to cover my ass. None of it matters anymore, right? Um, n- not in that context or whatever. It, we followed the rules of engagement. They were tight, and that's the whole point. So we had to lean into the IEDs or lean into the gunfire because of the IEDs, but then we, has, we had to wait on the gunfire. We had to wait on it. We knew that they weren't the farmer. We'd be in the white van, and they would come at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And they would hop out and we said, okay, let's do this. And they would say, okay. And then they would rip open with RPK into us and we would rip back. That was a significant part of it too. Um, And that goes back to that two-way street of fighting, just fighting. Um, So I kind of went down a rabbit hole on that. Um, (laughs) So you, but so what I got out of that was you expected it because it sounds like and I'm trying to think of my feelings on this, but it sounds like the the goal at the time was almost was was not, I don't want to say exclusively, but so heavily weighted towards survival as a it, unit, as a team, as an individual. It's it's 
so heavily weighted towards survival that I don't know if that's because some of the other stuff looked hopeless. Um, Here's what I'll say. I know what. Here's what happened. I know where I flipped. You go into it with cautious hesitation, plus fear, of course. Scared as hell. I've never been in Afghanistan before. I've never been in combat before. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Well, I do know, but I've never been tested. So, oh, it's nervous. Um, and they're looking at me because I am that last voice, as I described. They're looking at me. They have all of their trust and faith and everything that they've listened to through basic of listening to the rank and obeying orders, even if you disagree with them, is a faith that they're doing it for a reason. And as soon as they find out or learn or think that they're not doing it for a reason, that's totally fucked. So you got to have a reason. Um, I think honesty. Sunlight is the best disinfectant, um, but that's just me. Leadership is an art. But the, I just remember when we did Operation Dragon Strike, which would have been July. It, it was our first major offensive engagement. I was in defensive engagements before then and some stuff here and there. Um, not saying it wasn't a big deal. Of course it was, but... Um, on my timeline of 12 months of combat, they weren't much. And Dragon Strike happens at July, August, September, yes, three months. Three months in, really, though, about probably six weeks in, to be honest, by the time we actually rolled out. Um, when we did a six, I don't know, six, seven-hour-long gunfight where we used literally every single asset. We had to use every single asset possible. Um, A-10s. Tanks mounted on strikers shooting buckshot at them. Uh, 50 cal machine guns mounted on uh, up-armored Humvees, basically. Uh, grenade launchers, automatic grenade launchers. Hellfire missiles, bombs. Uh, I, I, I had piddly 240s and, and two, uh, unlimited 203s almost and AT4s and my own sort of bag of gadgets and rocketry. And we would be launching all of that. And gun runs, Apaches, all of these things everything i i don't think we dropped mortars or field or you know conventional artillery but that might have been it asset wise that we did not do um and i think sergeant paskey threw a hand grenade at some point i think he might have actually that. i was right next to him when he, okay. <laughs> he even threw a hand grenade he announced uh, it for the, everybody to know well that's a fallujah in him <laughs> okay he that's a fallujah in him you lead with hand grenades in fallujah okay um so there would we would lay the scunion like that and there would be a five to ten second lull and then pop 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 they were turning fire and you drop another bomb on them or you do another eight an a10 gun run is hellacious you see it on tv or whatever it's hellacious and it's just you're in awe of it and they would pop back out and start shooting back with ak-47 against uh, NATO against the new world order. And I made up my mind. They're never going to give up. They will die in fucking place. And then they will replace that guy. And oh no, they'll wheelbarrow him out real quick. And you'll never know that he was even there. And then they're just going to replace a guy and they will fight to the death. And uh, we're not going to do that. Yeah. It's valid. I mean, so as I, as I look back, I have a hard time 
But by the time we were done, I think the thing that I cling to was that we did it better than anybody else could have done, right? At the time, we were the best people to do that thing. But well, and then please and please explain to people if I don't want people to think I absconded from my duties. No, and didn't. That's, that's not how I took it. More <laughs> and just take like, up the offense and not, you know, and hesitate um, when it comes to lethality and, and offense, you know, and getting after it. I, I think I was kind of synonymous with that, in fact. But that's when reason and judgment, though, has to play in, and I guess the extent and scale of it each and every time. That's your rules. That's your escalation of force, kind of. How far do you push it? How far do you pull back? You know, it's both. And there's, I mean, looking back on that specific deployment, it's, that, that was the thing, right? We're supposed to bring big change. And I think it actually speaks, the reason I'm kind of zeroing in on it is because I think it actually speaks to the larger war. And, and is it something we could, quote, win or make a difference or whatever it might be? And I think we saw so many different pieces of it, an area that was fully under the control of the Taliban. And then we cleared an area out to allow people to come back in. And some did, some didn't. The Taliban kind of never left. They just waited. Um, it didn't matter how many were killed. They were always ready for another fight. Mm-hmm. It, it's, I mean, it's, and I don't know, you know, almost jealous, if that's the right word, to look at other conflicts and see the people that cleared islands in the Pacific because they cleared it mm. into that fight and they moved mm. on. They took Normandy. They took the beaches. They moved inland. They advanced towards mm. Germany, right? They're very clean things, but trying to explain the impact in Zari district. I mean, you, you remember, I don't know if you ever had to look at some of those spreadsheets of success metrics and things. They could be pages and pages long, hundreds of rows long of like, are there crops and are there more farmers than there were last week? And I don't know, trying to nail down, like, how can we say there, how can we measure success? And I don't know after all of that, by the time we left, other than we certainly took some territory, um, expanded our footprint a little bit. Did anything really change? And it kind of comes back to that mowing the grass. As soon as, NATO leaves as soon as the Afghan police spread out a little bit more, the Afghan army spreads out a little bit more. Was it even a thing? Or was it, I mean, realistically, if you look at the 20 year war in Afghanistan, that little movement, Dragon Strike, is kind of a blip on the radar. Well, yeah. Yeah. So if it's something like that again and again and again and again for 20 years, it makes me wonder if there was a, you know, did we have the ability to? Well, that's why I'd like to sit down with them. I'd like to just ask them, like, hey, man, how we do? You guys have been doing it forever. You did it for 40 years, actually. So how did, like, do you remember the eagle thing? Like the, the birds you kept, you know, the birds on the arm that one time 10 years ago? What was that like? And if they, I, I would like to hear what they said as compared to other units and different. That's the, uh, that's the competition in me, I guess. Um, but, you know. And I'd share my thoughts of them too. Um, it would be interesting, but that hundred-year-old guy, the Tacoa original, okay, um, he had a voice message. 
he had two birth- happy birthdays from one from the mayor of Carentan and one from the mayor of St. Mary Gleese. That's awesome. And uh, I don't think if I made it to a hundred, they're going, the mayor of Sangsar is going to be calling me, thanking me for my <laughs> actions. Um, you know, and that's the same thing with the Nam guys that I was there with, right? My ranger buddies from Vietnam. We're, <laughs> we're in the same boat, not the, not Pee Wee Martin. It's just an interesting post-World War II, which is good. Five, a half a million people had to die in the United States for Pee Wee to get his thank you like that. It was a big deal. Let's not forget that. And yeah, let's not forget that about uh, 10% of those fatalities occurred from Vietnam. That's good. That's good. And fewer people had to do it. Was it messed up? Yep. Did they get treated like shit? Yep. Um, Lots of things that went wrong. Yep. Did we learn from it? Yeah, no. Yeah. But probably more yeah than no, I think, because we're a lot fewer than Vietnam. Yeah. You know, even though it's the longest war in time um, from a numbers basis, not that one I don't want to value, but we're going to we are talking statistics and they are numbers at the end of the day. They are. We all are. We all know that we're about to be. There's an acceptance. You have to accept it. So and you got to talk about it. Because we got to ask these decisions or ask these questions before we make these type of decisions. And I don't want to lose sight that these numbers have gone down. Um, is a consequence of that, that fewer people are engaged with it in the civilianry? Yes, of course, because not as many people did it. But um, uh, it's just an interesting question because I don't want to have another Pee Wee Martin where the world's leaders are calling them a hundred years later because it was that significant because millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of people died as a result of that conflict. I don't want that either. So that kind of leads into what I was kind of saving for the last topic here, wrap it up, if you will, because I don't think it's an easy one and I'm going to trip over myself trying to answer this one too, but we're leaving, we're leaving Afghanistan what does that say about the sacrifices, those statistics, right? The individuals. Um, I, I'll, I'll lay out my thoughts on it first, give you a little time to think about it, because I know it's a, a tricky one here, but I'm stuck on this one. Because at the time, right when we got home for a couple of years after, I would say every soldier we lost, every Marine we lost, every member of NATO, every member of, of the Afghan military that we lost died you know, working alongside their brothers and helping their brothers and, and, and on patrol, on mission with their brothers, doing something for the, for the greater good, even if the greater good was their unit, right? Um, you know, maybe it's, it's clearing a lane of IEDs that, or, you know, an IED dog handler, Sergeant Kramer, right? That's out there clearing IEDs for dog company, steps mm-hmm. on an IED and has killed herself. She's out there trying to protect us, trying to protect mm-hmm. soldiers. So, so I she didn't the, even know in the micro, I can say that, but then I struggle with saying, but did they have to be there in the first place? Now I wanted to go. One of the reasons I joined the military was to go. I was excited to go to Afghanistan. I was happy to be there with dog company. I wanted to do that Volunteered to go back, right? Like I wanted to be there, wanted to do that. I never thought the war was wrong or any of that. But now that we're seeing that we're leaving, I can't help but wonder, yes, they made those sacrifices for their brothers, for, for those around them, but did they have to be there in the first place? And I 
cannot square those two. I think I know. Do you want to? I would disagree with you. I think we had to be there. I agree with him. I think we had to be there. Um, I think that let's talk about the Iraq war again. The Iraq war was going on and it did take, uh, we didn't get bin Laden and he was the guilty party. And, and now you have a presidential turnover who um, everybody thinks fake news and who knows what, right. But the, uh, the, the, the story goes from Obama's book himself saying that um, that was a big top priority of his was the war in Afghanistan. He was not a fan of Iraq. He wanted to get bin Laden too. And, and, and really hone in on that. And, and we were the shot. We could, the surge was, let's see if we could. Well, let's see if we can. We haven't been paying attention to it. We kind of kicked their ass when we were paying attention at the beginning. Then we got distracted. Taliban came back in 06. Okay, uh, let's wrap Iraq up. Remember, people my age and our age that were PLs at that time were kind of wrapping up fobs. And that was the new dawn type um changeover era they weren't getting the combat infantry badge type stuff that we were so you know so it was like hey let's that makes sense too by the way um if we're going to fight two wars on two fronts we really shouldn't be surging both gee whiz so um so take a shot and you got a new president who has new uh just probably ideas and thoughts it comes from a different background uh george bush was in the military, son of a World War II pilot, president, of course. And um, to me, if, I'm just saying, with the knowledge that you had, was it logical and rational at the time to make that decision? I think absolutely. Uh, we were on orders to go to Iraq for the fourth time. What the hell were we going to do there? Um, what the hell were we going to do there? And we don't know what a surge looks like in Afghanistan. At the time, Iraq did look pacified with the new counterinsurgency policy. So again, why wouldn't you try to apply that? Again, knowing you're going to take deaths, of course, anytime you deploy us, you're going to. But we know that too. And it sucks. Sucks. But um, but why not? Because then you'll know. And it's only going to take dot, 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 right? A hundred. I'm sure, you know, the Congress wanted 90 and I'm sure the generals wanted 250. And you had to meet us in the middle here at 1.30 or whatever it ended up being and say, come on, England, give me as much as you can. Canada said, I'm out of this, guys. Well, I'm done. I'm done here. And so we said, OK, fine. So we had to come up with the number somehow. But to give it a shot, you give it the shot. And I do think we give it a shot. But I'm just telling you my judgment at the time, though, kind of in the midst of it, in the middle of it was just like you would have to do this upon. I thought I at the time it's called a surge. It is called a surge. It's not called a maintenance. It was a troop surge. And meaning in my mindset, as the doer on the ground, this isn't going to always be a surge like this. This is not a normal sort of environment. And I know this because we took over for um, very scarcely populated from a coalition standpoint environment. We were like, we really plussed up the area and in a very abnormal way of a war that's been going on for almost a decade. So to me, it was unique. It was a special time. To, to give it our all. And I think we gave it our all. I do, but that's all my point is I'm saying, I hope we did it within reason. And we got lucky a lot too. <laughs> golly, uh, golly, there's, there is luck involved, of course. I like it. Well, that's a good, uh, a good tough topic to, to end it on here, talking 
U.S. troop withdrawal from Afghanistan. I've got some more. I know that's going to be something I'm going to be thinking about a lot more is, is um, now that we're leaving, what does it look like? Were certain things, you know, then, then you get into what is, what is worth it, what's not worth it, and, and all those deep thoughts. But Well, what do we do with it? That's the question. So hopefully, the, hopefully, hopefully learn. But, but the challenge here is I've got this note page of, of comparisons between Vietnam and Afghanistan. And it, it's like we did the exact same thing to a degree. You know what I mean? No, uh, no, 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 no. We cannot worry about the things that we cannot control. So unless you and I are running for Congress or the entity who declares war and that sort of thing and to make these type of policy decisions, uh, which I'm not planning to anytime soon, um, then... The question is, what do we do? And I'm talking about you and I. And if, if here's the question. For one thing, you and I wouldn't know each other. Okay, let's not forget that. Is that a value? Do, can we remember people that did die and spread the wisdom and the things that we learn and the things that we carry? Can we be better parents for it? If, I, if I'm a better dad now and I'm raising three children because of that, and I'm a better, I have a framework on life. Um, I'm still a little crazy in my head. I think about it all the time, um, but I try to think about it so that I don't lose sight of what it was and who the people are, because I view the people I served with in the same tier as I would, you know, the honor I have of being a dad and a spouse and the reward it has is the same value I place on, um, you know, guiding those guys. Well, that is a nice upbeat message to end it on. So appreciate you jumping on here, Sarah. Some, some deep topics, so it's fun to talk through, and uh, we'll do this again soon, man. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.